0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to a really amazing journalist, Carla Power, about her book published last year, 2021, by One World Press, titled Homeland Security, De-Radicalization and the Journey Back from Extremism, which explores a really important question. What actually are the roots of radicalism? Um, The book covers a massive amount of ground um, and yet stays focused on this really key question, right? As Carla writes in the book, quote, this book is simply an attempt to interrogate what we mean when we talk about Islamist terrorism by talking to jihadis and those who have worked to help them leave violence behind. And that's such a simple opening and yet sets up an incredibly powerful and interesting book. So I'm really excited to welcome Carla Power to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Could we please start off with you introducing yourself, your background a bit, and explain why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, I was
1: raised sort of partly in the Midwest, in St. Louis, Missouri, and partly in um, a variety of Muslim-majority countries, um, and the Middle East, uh, and Central Asia in general. And Iran and Afghanistan and Egypt, and I got very interested in how um, different. Well, how how non-Muslims see Muslims. Uh, I went on to study that, study Orientalism and literature, and from there uh, did uh, modern Middle Eastern studies, and uh, got interested in Islamic studies, and went on to start a career in journalism, looking. At writing about a lot of things, but uh, keeping coming back to Muslim societies, and uh, my first book was uh, called "If the Oceans Were Ink," and it was about sort of sitting down with a uh, a very traditional Muslim sheikh, uh, Muslim scholar, and looking over the Quran together and trying to see where our world views mine as you know a feminist american uh secularist and his as a traditional islamic scholar converged and diverged when i was done with that uh it suddenly occurred to me that um i you know throughout my year you know 20 years of of working in journalism when people would say you know, write about terrorism, let's talk about terrorism, I would immediately bat it away. I would immediately say, you know, that's a tiny minority of Muslims. Um, that's Orientalist. Uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about the vast majority of Muslims, which is still obviously something I would stick to. But it did occur to me that I had kind of left uh radicalization in a kind of black box. It was kind of see no evil, hear no evil. And I didn't want to think about it as um, a liberal who was was trying very hard through, through feature stories and even through news stories to uh, write about Islam and Muslims in a way that uh, in in different ways than one so often read about in the headlines, if one followed just um, simply world events, particularly after nine eleven. So it I you know I it occurred to me that that one shouldn't just leave the grounds to the extremists, uh, leave the field to the extremists who would of course whether they were Islamophobes or whether they were. Um, Muslim extremists would would uh, be allowed to um, define what Islamic extremism or violent extremism meant. And so I decided to look into um, de-radicalization programs and look at, step away from the notion of the terrorist as sort of once a terrorist, always a terrorist, or these are bad guys, this kind of binary opposition that had flowered, particularly after 9-11 in public discourse, certainly in the United States and in the West more broadly. And really try to drill down and look at um, what, what leads people into violent extremist groups Um, and, and what, if any, are successful techniques for bringing them out. So in otherwise, in other words, instead of looking at it as a static system of evil and good, rather to look at it as a dynamic system with uh, multiple factors,
0: um, both leading into it and out of it. And so what then Because you start off the book kind of introducing this overall um, what you're investigating, kind of what you've just explained to us. And your first stage of it is really fascinating, because the first thing you do is you go talk to mothers. Why was this your first step sort of into understanding this process, into radicalization and back out?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, (laughs) for thousands of years in in, in public discourse, nothing humanizes like a mother that, you know, war propagandists know well, um, that, uh, you know, to create a monster, uh, monsters don't have mothers. They kind of erupt from the earth and, uh, are unknowable, unreachable, uh, and, and, um, and, and and sort of, and are, are encapsulated as evil. Um, a mother humanizes, and I also wanted to. The, the other thing that that made me interested in in terms of mothers, mothers see the long view. And I, I should I should hasten to add, I don't. I and I was very careful in the book. I didn't want to reify motherhood. Um, and, 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 you know, make something more important about mothers than about fathers. But in reality, the only people I could find, the only relatives who were speaking out about their sons, who largely sons, who had joined, um, say, um, the Islamic State to fight in Syria um, in the West were mothers. Fathers didn't want to talk. So um, I was interested in mothers as this powerful metaphor of somebody who humanized, but also people who take the long view, people who had photos on their mantles of, you know, gap-toothed kids on bicycles, who knew these people before they were drawn into violent extremism, and who also, almost to a woman, had a vision of their son's um, being able to change, of 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 having known them before they became this thing, which at the time that I was in, I was um, investigating it. You know, this was at the time at the height of the Islamic State's um, sort of willful and deliberate strategy of atrocities of you know, burning people alive and and streaming it online or of um, having a very, very um, bold and unapologetic shock and awe um, strategy that they they used as propaganda to garner headlines, to scare people and to um, capture the world's attention and capture it they did. So there really was this whole discourse when I was looking at it in 2016, 2017, in particular, of the inhumanity of the Islamic State. And yet by starting off by talking to mothers uh, who, of course, were sentimentally attached to the humanity of their sons, I could at least begin to put together origin stories for how these young people got drawn in.
0: That's really interesting. And I'm I'm glad you made a point of kind of saying you're not trying to reify motherhood um, because, of course, in the book, um, you do have really helpful kind of meta-analyses in a lot of ways of um, this nuance that you bring to it, uh, which, unfortunately, we're probably not going to be able to do all of that nuance justice in this interview. Uh, But I would really like to point listeners uh, to that because quite often, especially... In um, some of these early chapters, as you talk about what you found out in these stages of your investigation, you talk about what you thought about it as well and how it then led to your next stage, um, which is a really helpful aspect to understand as you kind of take us through the journey of uncovering, as you said, these origin stories, these ideas for change and going beyond the sort of really shocking headlines. Um, And I wanted to ask then about another one of those stages that you talk about, uh, which is moving more beyond the individual approach of this particular person and this particular person's mother or relative. Um, You also look at some community-focused aspects, and this is particularly around kind of de-radicalization approaches, um, but still thinking about kind of how do people become radicalized? Therefore, how do people come out of it? And I was wondering if you could maybe introduce us to one or two of these community focused approaches? Um, Because in some ways, we can all kind of imagine a mother who has a child and how they would have a long be able to have a longer view, but community focused de radicalization approaches may be less familiar to people. So could you tell us about one or two that you came across? Sure, yeah, I I remember a, a real sort of Scale
1: dropping from my eyes, kind of moment um, when I I first went to Aarhus in Denmark, um, which has a very famous program, which um, detractors call "Hug a Terrorist" program. Um, it was uh, it sort of flipped the kind of securitized uh, punitive approach that i had certainly in the anglo-american sphere had seen where it was kind of like get these bad guys lock them up throw away the key Aarhus famously um is a, a small town where they decided to at least for a time before it became um criminalized for people to go to syria but for a time um they would, you know, the the basic question was not, you know, why is there evil in the world? Why are these people so evil? But rather, they flipped it and asked the question, what is it about our society that is making these young people want want to fight and die on a foreign field, essentially? And with, you know, the... Sort of muscular uh, coffers of the the you know the the, the well endowed uh, welfare state in in Denmark. They were able to set up a police program where the police aren't there to criminalize. They they sit in this this particular detective unit sits in a little yellow house, sort of looks like something out of Hans Christian Andersen, and basically have a drop-in center for returning foreign fire- fighters and their families. And so instead of criminalizing the whole thing, they there would be a detective sitting there talking to upset mothers, frantic fathers, and indeed sons who would come back off the battlefield and saying, how can we help you? Obviously, there is something wrong with the system. Can we help you? get an apartment, get a psychiatrist, get a job, get training for a job. And, um, you know, I'm, I worked with one um, detective who would spend years helping support um, these returnees and trying to turn them around. And sometimes he was successful and other times he wasn't as successful, um, depending on quite how radicalized um these these folks had become, uh, but it absolutely inverted this notion of we have to push these people out of society. The idea was we have to bring these people back into society and show them basically how great the Danish state is. I mean, there there was a, it was interesting because talking to various um, rehabilitation officers, not just in aarhus but in in Denmark as well, there definitely was a discourse of sort of like, Denmark's so great. Why would you want to (laughs) leave? You know? Um, And, and, and I have to say, I mean, this was interesting because the backdrop of Denmark and certainly in the years after I, I um, did the interviews turned much more right wing and there was much more stringent. I mean, Denmark, you know, now has um, ghettos where, um, you know, if you live in a particular community um, that has been earmarked, and, and sadly, these are these are often communities of, of recent immigrants, um, you know, you can get a much stiffer sentence for, for the same crimes as if you live outside of these communities. So I'm not saying that Denmark is um, across the board sort of all... Um, all liberal. Um, but these particular rehabilitation projects were astonishingly, um, sort of progressive and, um, you know, hug a terrorist effectively. So that was my first sort of shock at thinking about, um, thinking about how extremists in our midst can, don't just say something about the extremists and and that was such a permanent kind of fixture of post 9/11 thought particularly in this in the states and the uk i.e. these extremists are outside of our society they are they are um, you know they're perverting islam they're perverting democracy they're perverting um, you know civilized civilized laws and civilized um aspirations but when i went to denmark suddenly it was flipped on its head in rather what did the fact that, that we have all these people attracted to violent extremism what does that say about our society what can it tell us about uh, the ills or the or the problems in our society and that seemed to me incredibly instructive the other place that um, seemed to have really innovative rehabilitation prob- um, programs um, was Pakistan. Uh, one of them, which no longer runs, but was running sort of at the height of the Taliban influence in the Swat Valley, just sort of um, from 2007 to 2009, um, the Pakistani um, wing of the Taliban took over the Swat Valley essentially. And lots and lots of young, you know, mostly teenagers, um, were recruited. And, uh, one psychologist started a boarding school there, which, uh, various academics, uh, including John Horgan, who's one of, who's at, um, I believe Georgia state, uh, who is one of the most, um, well-respected academics looking at radicalization both um white supremacists and and religious related uh radicalization he is called sabayun which is this boarding school in the mountains of the hindu kush um the most successful de-radicalization program he's seen and I think the reason it was, was it was so embedded in the local culture. It was so long-term. They would keep these boys for years and the boys would come in and often they'd been, you know, they witnessed horrible things. Um, They'd been effectively sort of kidnapped or um, groomed by Taliban commanders and forced to do all sorts of things from, you know, um, being strapped with suicide bombs with, or, you know, witnessing really horrible, uh, uh, acts of violence. And they were put in this kind of British style boarding school, uh, where psychologists would work with them. There'd be cricket and soccer, uh, and, uh, art therapy and various other things. And what differentiated this school, I think, from a lot of programs was that it also worked very closely with the communities so that it wasn't just a question of, you know, you reform a kid and then you send him out uh, into the community. Uh, there would be, you know, when when a child was, was deemed fit for release, that the people from the school would go and work with the village elders or would work with you know, would set the kid up in with his own motorcycle shop or would help him, you know, prepare for university exams. And the school had an incredible track record, um, both in terms of a very low recidivism rate and in terms of actually taking these kids who were from some of the poorest parts of, of, of Pakistan and, um, you know, there are lawyers who have graduated from Sabayun. There is, was one boy who came in as a Taliban, a very, quite high up in the Taliban. He's now, uh, he went to get his psychology degree and he now works um, as a psychologist with former extremists. He came back to the school while the school was still open and, and worked as a psychologist so extraordinary turnaround. And again, I mean, rather like the mothers I mentioned earlier, I think the success of this school came from taking a really long view and also being deeply embedded in the local culture. Um, and, and that's that's something that not all de radicalization programs, there are some top-down de radicalization programs that haven't worked nearly as well and that the idea also that one size is going to fit all has been shown time after time um not to to work particularly well and um fariha paracha who started sabayun was intent on tailor making um each a, a program for each boy um, so that it was deeply individualized and, and linked to the community. So, so both Denmark and Pakistan were real eye openers.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, they were really interesting to read about in the book. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you picked those two to showcase. There were definitely a few others in the book as well. Um, that were really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad you kind of highlighted the like ways in which they worked and how they were structured and also sort of some of the kind of obvious limitations, for example, of scale for um, and funding and time. Um, and so to kind of continue the progression from the individual to the community, I'd love for you to tell us about one of the kind of institutional or I suppose municipal level things that you saw, um, which is a town in Belgium that I'm absolutely going to butcher the pronunciation of. Um but I thought this was particularly interesting because Belgian Belgium is often thought of when it comes to radicalization as sort of a problem spot, right? There are certain areas where uh the population has disproportionate representation in terrorist groups, for example. Um, And so it was really interesting to see the book go to Belgium and yet come up with something of an example um, of de-radicalization um, or counter-radicalization. So I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us about kind of what does this look like at the sort of city institution level?
1: Absolutely. Um, Mechelen is a fascinating um, example because it's, it as you say, it's, it's on the train line. The train line between Brussels and Antwerp is sort of the richest seam, was the richest seam for young people leaving to fight in Syria um, for the Islamic State um, per capita in the Western world. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a stretch, a short stretch of train line, and Mechalin is on it. Ten minutes away uh, is the town of Bildward, which for a time had the highest per capita um, of, of towns sending people to the Islamic State. Mechelen, uh, according to most reports, had no one. And the reason it had no one, I think, was um, largely down to a visionary mayor who came in at the turn of the last, that in 2000. Um, Mechelen, for a long time, was kind of it, I think they had a term for it, Chicago on, and I'm going to mangle this now, the Dilje. Chicago on whatever river flows <laughs> right by it um, because it was seen as quite lawless, um, quite um, a really, really high crime rate. Um, there was a really high, before 2000, uh, about a third of the town had voted for, far-right extremist parties because there was a real fear of immigration from um, Morocco. And um, streets were derelict. Um, Houses were... Little old ladies were terrified to walk the streets. And um, a visionary mayor named Bart Summers came in and he realized what he calls hyper, hyper diversity had come to town, that there were a lot of people from a lot of different cultures. And whereas that the kind of Pat response to fast migration, this had been an, you know, an old, all white Flemish town, just a generation or two before um, when he was born 57 years ago, you know, he, it was, it was all Flemish speaking and all white. And now um, around 2000, it was like 157 different um, nationalities um, comprised the the town's, I think 20,000 or so people. And unlike a lot of people, he said, look, I may be, I, he, he's like, 13th generation Mechelen, um, his, you know, the, the, the whole town was very, very proud of this big cathedral with an incredibly high, um, uh, church tower. And he's like, you know, my ancestors may have built this. And that's fine. But I am the first generation to live in a hyper diverse Mechelen and it is all of our jobs to try to live in this new reality and live peacefully and pro- and with prosperity. And what he did was first off, he, when, when around, you know, post nine 11, and certainly like in two, you know, in 2015, there were horrible bombs that in, in Brussels, which is at the Brussels airport, which is like 20 minutes away from Mechlin. Um, he, he was like, look, these, and you know, a lot, there was a lot of discourse about, you know, these foreigners coming in and this, these are new immigrants. He's like, no, this is a Belgian problem. These, these people have done something wrong. The bombers have done something wrong, but this is our problem and we've got to work together. And he had also taken, he, he, And and he also sort of identified uh, in a way with violent extremism, partly because he had Nazis in his own family. And he would go out and he would talk about his uncle Jan, who had been a Flemish, you know, had been a Flemish nationalist in in the run-up to World War II. And then suddenly... Through, because Flemish nationalists sort of sided with the Nazis uh, at a certain point in the war, had lost a son in a Nazi uniform. You know, this had been a very cultured guy who had written travel books and run an orchestra and was a kind of, you know, bourgeois Belgian dream who went down the rabbit hole of extremism pretty quickly. And Bart Summers recognized that in his own family. And so far from othering um, the bombers as a lot of other Belgian politicians did, he said, look, extremism can happen to any of us. And it's up to um, a health to build healthy, civic kind of connective tissue again. And to do that, he drew from both the left and the right. He put in police, he he upped the police force because he said, look, when people feel unsafe on on streets, they're going to turn to nativist pop politicians or immigrants. They're going to turn on immigrants and turn to nativist politicians. So I want to make people feel safe on the streets of McElwain. The other thing he did, though, was he said, we are going to really actively try to integrate communities. So he, you know, there, there's a certain amount of school choice allowed for, for in, in Belgian schools. And he went out and people from his team actively convinced, you know, white middle-class types to integrate into schools where there was the majority of first-generation or second-generation folks And they actively integrated scout troops where they would go out to recent immigrants and say, Come on, send your kids to this. This is a great Belgian institution. They'll learn about, you know, they'll learn about Belgian culture and it'll be, you know, and so actively working um, in a really muscular way to integrate people. He also instigated something called speed dating between, um, between. Sort of old, older Flemish residents and um, recent arrivals from um, various various other countries, and they would work together for six months and meet every week. And the idea, you know, the the, the Flemish the Flemish um, native natives would you know, teach them how to open bank accounts or, you know, um, how to o- order in a restaurant and work on language skills and so on. And the migrant would would um, kind of open the horizons of, of these um, these folks who, who might never have, you know, traveled to Morocco or, or Syria or so on. And, um, and it worked. And what what had once been the ranked as the dirtiest and least attractive Belgian city is now ranking at the top of all rankings. Mm. Um, it's, it's incredibly prosperous. I mean, as Bart Summers said, you know, people associate immigration and, um, and poverty and degradation of cities. We tore that apart. We showed them that diversity can mean prosperity and and um house rising house prices and and um being and good schools and so on so um he really saw it as a civic um a, a civic thing and, and i think he he also was very good at tearing apart the notion of, you know, it's the job of the migrant to, to integrate or to get along in the society rather like sweeping the streets or cleaning toilets. He's like, no, this is everybody's job. We are living in a hyper diverse city and it is everybody's job, whether I've been here 13 generations or I've been here six months to get along together. And it was strong leadership and he's been recognized for it. Um, I know German mayors were all given copies of his book. He's risen quickly in, in the EU, in EU circles on radicalization and strategies for inclusion and, um, diversity. So, um, he's going places and, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure he'll, you know, I, well, I hope, I hope he'll, uh, he'll, we, we have not heard the last of him at all.
0: Thank you for sharing that example. Um, I think it's really interesting on sort of a larger level, given the assumptions made about Belgium and radicalization, um, but also to hear the details about the specific sort of policies he instituted um, and also kind of the way he framed those narratives uh, for the population of the town. You know, kind of, I've been here 13 generations, but um, is a really interesting kind of lens to see this through so thank you for explaining that obviously to listeners the book has more detail <laughs> but has done a brilliant job of giving us kind of the gist of it um and i wanted to kind of now that we've seen a few different examples um this was obviously also a literal journey right you went to a bunch of these places and spoke with people and in a number of cases spent rather a lot of time with them um, and in quite kind of intimate circumstances, you know, speaking one-on-one with a mother whose son maybe no longer was alive um after radicalization. Um what could you maybe kind of take us behind the scenes a little bit? Um as academics, we're very interested in like the process of research and how we think about things and how we learn as we um go through a project. So I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about you talk about it in your book, um, about how your own sort of background and biases impacted influenced um, how you approached researching this book.
1: Yeah, well, it, I mean, it was it was fascinating, and you know, I, I started off um, assuming that I wouldn't be able to talk to any um, violent extremists themselves. I mean, it, it was an it was an index of exactly how. Um, how my my lens was the sort of securitized environment in say England where I live or, or the United States where I'm from that I was like well of course these people will be in prison and I will I, it will be very very difficult to get interviews with them uh, but it wasn't until I started talking about like I I went to um, Indonesia for example um, I with where I was invited to a conference of former jihadis, and um, which which both spoke to ha- what a very, very different approach Indonesia has uh, from from the other countries that i'd I'd looked at in the West uh, in terms of rehabilitation. Um, this was a conference um, much like, any other conference, um, with, you know, its own swag bags. It was in a five star hotel. Um, there were bottles of water next to our, our desks and, you know, a, a program of events over three or four days. And it opened with, um, a, a gentleman who is, uh, an amazing social entrepreneur who has been working, uh, to rehabilitate former jihadis uh, for quite some time and had, has done it in very creative ways. He's helped them start businesses, he's helped them um, learn about public speaking. And he opened the conference by saying, you know. This is. We have four generations of jihadis with us today. We've gotten. He introduced a a graybeard from uh, who had fought against the Soviets in Afghanistan, and then um, some people who, during the the nineties, had been in the Philippines fighting in the jungles there uh, under under Islamic groups, and then more recently, somebody who had. A whole family who had come back from the Islamic State, um, twenty-six members of an extended family, um, led in large part by their sixteen-year-old daughter, and he introduced this, the 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 young woman who sort of waved like a prom queen. And that, you know, yeah. When I when I went to Indonesia, he was like, "Yeah, we're having this conference," and I, I of course, he's like. Um There are a couple of rooms you know next to in the hotel where their jihadis are staying, and I was sitting here, you know making my travel arrangements from Brighton, thinking, I really do not want to stay in the same hotel as you know all these former jihadis um, and so I stayed at the adjoining hotel just to just to be safe but um and and of course, by the end of the four days. I was, you know, planning on going with a former ISIS supporter to his old Quranic study group on a motorcycle and stuff, which I didn't end up doing. But, but I guess my point was that it was so um, our, our own notions um, formed in the post nine eleven era and formed by the the criminalization of of violent extremists. Um, particularly in the 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 um, religious violent extremists, um, mean that I was so sure that that th- this was going to be beyond my reach, and yet other countries who might not see these people necessarily as as criminals, but as in Indonesia, one analyst said to me, they they tend to see these these fellow Muslims, as just having had the wrong interpretation. And if they can only be coaxed back into the fold of, of the moderate, proper, peaceful Islam, that, that is what they see as, as um, necessary. So it's a, it was, in some ways, it was shocking how easy it was and how eager people were um to talk and tell their stories. Um so the research wasn't um it I wish I could say, you know, it took all sorts of journalistic voodoo to get these <laughs> interviews. But it it um you know, I was I was surprised. I talked to um in detail one one guy who um in in the United States who had um, gone over and joined the taliban and for a time was work oh actually was working with al-qaeda to um and had suggested a plan to blow up the long island railroad um he had grown up on long island and he was and he came back and he did his time and he served as a a cia informant and testified in a bunch of trials and then got free and he was you know, he had done a 180 degree and was eager to tell his story. So I think, um, I think it's, it's surprising how much, how much people do want to talk and to want to be understood. And, um, the, the, the notion of, yeah, I, I at midway through, I was like, well, I'm going to try not to have anybody be on the pale, and I actually failed at that. Um, one of the one of the conference goers in in Indonesia in Jakarta was um, the man I lay, sort of nicknamed in my head the beheader. Um, he had during the 90s when there were great sectarian tensions between Christian and Muslim groups in parts of Indonesia. He had masterminded the beheading of two Christian schoolgirls. And as much as I knew journalistically, I really, really needed to talk to this guy. I mean, you know, this guy had a mother, too. This guy presumably had some sort of trajectory towards his terrible act. Uh, But throughout the conference, I found myself sort of, you know, ducking away from him and just not getting up the courage. And then finally, on the last day, uh, when everybody else had left, I found myself waiting for an elevator and he was waiting for the same elevator and we made small talk. And I should have, you know, if I were really uh, sort of on my game as a researcher uh, or a journalist, uh, I should have engaged him and Asked him for an interview and asked him what led him uh, down his path, but my knees were so weak and I was so uh, terrified that I that I didn't.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really um, interesting, but also kind of helps give context and understanding to the whole like, environment that this is in, right? These conversations, these initiatives, um, going and finding out about these things aren- don't happen in a vacuum. And so the kind of fact that this is all in the era after 9-11 and criminalization um, really impacts kind of assumptions that everyone has. Uh, and I think it's really helpful to kind of surface that. Uh, so thank you for sort of sharing that as part of your process. Um, I'm sure I I can almost imagine what I'm guessing your face might've looked like when you got that email saying, yes, stay in the jihadi hotel. Um, (laughs) That was probably not what you were expecting when you opened that email. Um, So, but I I think that the point about kind of how different um, cultures understand kind of what extremism is, you know, on the one hand, is it, okay, these are people who are just fully removed from society and have absolutely nothing in common with us. um, Or is it kind of well, actually, the case hasn't been made about why you might want to be part of the system? Or is it, well, actually, we're all part of the same general umbrella, but there's different interpretations, some of which make more sense than others. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing to highlight. And in fact, in a somewhat somewhat related way, you come to a question like this in the book when you talk about some of the people you're um, in conversation with, um, have something of an idea that, The main thing impacting these um, recruits to violent extremism um, is that they were, quote, simply victims of the breakdown of Western civilization. And this isn't necessarily something that the people you're talking to, you know, go around saying this is everything. This is the entire answer in and of itself. But it was interesting to see through the book kind of how consistently this idea or this possibility that this was something people were thinking about and sort of ruminating on when trying to understand how radicalization was happening. And so as you've kind of gone and looked at all these different things and spoken to all these different people, I'm wondering kind of what your sort of overall thoughts are on this idea of victims of the breakdown of Western civilization.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say victims of Western the breakdown of Western civilization. I would say that to, to look, and as you look at at, at people in these different contexts, they are pointing to inequalities or brokenness in their systems. Um, there's a terrific book on on how corruption is one of the biggest fuels. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, one of the biggest fuels in places like. Um, in place in Af- in several African com- countries for for violent extremist recruits um, <clears throat> anger at systems where say for example it, you know you need to government officials will need bribes to get by or um, you know you see you see um, government officials you know riding around in huge huge cars um, when the rest of the population is, um, you know, is, is struggling to get by, or, or when police forces or security forces are hauling people off the streets to um, imprison them or subject them to, to beatings. Um, the UN, um, UNHCR, I think, did, did a survey of people in West Africa who had joined violent extremist groups, quote-unquote violent extremist groups, and about 71% of them said it was because either a friend or a family member had been, what they saw, um, abused by security forces or the government. So that real loss of sense of trust in authority and trust in systems, I think, is a, a much overlooked um uh root cause of of people turning to what are dubbed violent extremist groups um when you can't trust the system or, or when and and, and and flip that around too um you look at other inequalities that are driving it was interesting um The head of Nigeria's early de-radicalization program, who is a very impressive um, woman psychiatrist, said that when she tried to set up um, rehabilitation programs for folks who had joined Boko Haram, it was the women who joined, not the men who were really, really hard to rehabilitate because the women often came from villages where traditionally they young, young women were married off you know um, in, in their very early teens. and when you were once you were married off your life was pretty much preordained as cooking, cleaning and raising children. And she said a lot of these women would be recruited. you know some sort of commander from the Boko Haram would come by and say, listen. Under Boko Haram, you could get a job, you could have a slave to do your housework, you could, um, you have the right to divorce your husband if you if you don't want to live with him anymore. And these women women saw all these possibilities, and so when it came to rehabilitating people who, um, you know, were were captured by the government and then put into de-radicalization, the women were like, the women had much more to lose um, because there were those basic gender inequalities in society that they were fighting against that these groups, um, you know, gave them possibilities they didn't have in in their own village cultures. So um, for me, the really important thing is um, looking at... At, at what extremists tell us about what's wrong, I look in the United States, and you know, the, the the rise of of white nationalism, and you know, I'm I'm no expert in that, but what seems to me is there's there's so many, you know, the the basic things that that you can see in terms of people joining jihadi groups, um, anger at the system, or loneliness or feeling atomized and cut off from mainstream society, or the sense of wanting brotherhood or belonging, or the sense, um, as George Orwell pointed out, of wanting a cause, wanting something. George Orwell wrote this extraordinary um, review of Mein Kampf, I think, in 1939 for the Spect. The Spectator or The New Statesman in, in Britain? Anyway, he wrote it for, for a, a British um, periodical where he said, you know, I can, yeah, one understands that people want a cause. There's, the, you know, if, if it were enough to give people, um, you know, universal health care and, you know, secure secure jobs for life, and a quiet little life in the suburbs. um, That would be the end of that. But he says people want, there is a certain craving, particularly among certain people, for a a cause that's larger than themselves, and for sort of blood and belonging. And um, Orwell noted, you know, he wasn't condoning that. um, And he certainly wasn't you know, excusing um, uh, the rise of Nazi Germany. But he did see that, um, that need to belong to something larger than oneself as um,
0: a frightening but um, basic human need. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind as well when we think about kind of the overall lessons from the book, Um, because obviously you're talking about kind of a specific type of radicalization in a specific context and yet it is part of this larger conversation about kind of well what do people want and why do they want those things and what might be they be prepared to do or change in their lives to get it um and i really appreciate that kind of the book talks about those wider things without going sort of too meta and removed from daily life um, but without (laughs) sort of focusing so much on the individual that we lose those sort of threads as well it's it's, I think a difficult balancing act but a really helpful one to kind of make uh, your experiences make sense to the rest of us because we're obviously not all going to go to jihadi conferences in Indonesia Um, (laughs) so I think that that was a really useful part of the book and I'm really uh, thank you for sharing that in your answer in the interview. and as we come towards sort of the end of the interview, I kind of have two, I guess, a little bit more lightning questions as much as that ever happens in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've mentioned in this interview, a number of different kind of ways of thinking about radicalization and de-radicalization, different efforts going on in different parts of the world. Um, there's a number of additional ones in the book that we've not really gotten into, um, but kind of given how much time and energy and thought you've put into this, I'm wondering if there's any sort of aspects that you see in common across them or a particular policy where you're like, you know, that's a good idea that could be done more widely. Or is the answer, well, actually, there really is no one size fits all, and it is incredibly community specific. Um, What would sort of be your kind of overall takeaway around de-radicalization, having seen all these different efforts? Are there ways forward? I
1: think yes, I think there are, but but they're they're probably not what governments <laughs> hope they would be. I mean, it's funny. I think of Germany, which of course, because of its history, um, has had to think very seriously about rehabilitation, both of, uh, well, certainly of, of, of neo Nazis and more more lately of of some jihadis, and. Um, you know, it has more probably more de-radicalization programs than, than any other country. There are like 720 um, uh, programs at prevention of extremism or rehabilitation from extremism. And they are hugely different. I mean, there's everything from, you know... Skateboarding and punk rock rehabilitation to uh, people who focus on masculinities and femininities as as a central core of of the question of radicalization. Um, And there are you know predictably um, long German words that I can't pronounce um, um, that you know that with with trademarks on them responsibility education. Uh, and so on, which, which stresses that former offenders need to take responsibility in, a, in very basic ways. So I, I, I keep coming back to um, the sense that it will have to be really, really focused on an individual basis. There are as many ways into extremism as there are out of it. And that kind of detailed, long-term Um, really individually tailored work is not something, you know, governments particularly uh, given the economic climate these days are going to want to look at. Um, But I also think it really has to be um, tailored to the individual and also tailored to the locality. Um, It really has to be a community effort. One of the mistakes I think that both Britain and America have made is that the well certainly with with muslim um violent extremists is that it has been a top-down effort it has focused on one particular community and and it hasn't been a grassroots effort at all it hasn't been inclusive rather it's been coming out of fear and um fear and federalism effectively that it's 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 uh it, it's not been tailored to particular locations. And I think um, it has to be inclusive. We have to look at it at, at extremism as community-wide problems. And it has to start in very, very small ways, whether in school boards, whether in um, hospitals, or there are people who are talking about um thinking about this as a public health issue. Um, it has to be creative and it, it cannot have the othering effect, the post 9-11 era um, fear and um, security approach had um, because that didn't work. Um, it stigmatized entire populations. It alienated exactly the people we needed to, to incorporate. Um, and it, it divided the
0: country. Which is not exactly helpful for everyone getting along or de-radicalization or preventing radicalization in the first place.
1: Absolutely. And, and I should say, I don't think, you know, I mean, it's, uh, let's not rock. Let's not knock radicalization. Um, you know, um, r- radicals are are the sap for change and rethinking things. Um, it's it's violent extremism and violent radicalization that that uh, is is the problem and intolerance and hate, obviously, Um but but uh, you know I mean one of the one of the reasons that I think the United States, for example, has been so behind other countries in you know not starting de-radicalization program is because rightly we have long had a problem with the government trying to retrain how people should think um, you know that and and you know we we have. Um, you know, religious freedom is 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 a tenet of American democracy. So, getting involved in, you know, teaching Muslims how to rethink about the tenets of their faith is is something that rightly, um, law enforcement um, was was nervous about. Um, so, it's um, it's it's a really slippery slope. But once one sees how many things and how and once also the the other big surprise i had was how you know everybody keeps and i was thinking of this um when there was that horrible shooting in buffalo a few weeks ago and people kept talking about the white supremacist ideology you know we've got to stamp out these ideologies and the closer you drill down into people who join these groups it's often not ideology that motivates them. It's much more banal. It's mental health issues. It's breaking up with a girlfriend. It's loneliness. It's wanting to belong, as I was saying before. And this notion that we have to attack white supremacist ideology, I think falls into a similar trap that we did with jihadi ideology and the dangers of jihadi ideology that we all ran around talking about and writing about in the wake of 9-11. Ideology is, is, is a fancy name. And I, you know, I'm not saying there aren't ideologues at the head of these movements. I'm not saying that there aren't very influential intellectual ideas or readings of particular tracts or scriptures. What I am saying, though, is that for the foot soldiers, it's often much, much more banal than that. And we should really be digging down and looking at the same things that worry us about other forms of social ills, you know, um, loneliness, truancy, broke, you know, families that that um, aren't aren't functioning well, schools that aren't teaching well. It's 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 these things, these banal things. I'm convinced. Um, that we need to look at rather than these 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 grand um
0: civilizational um theories well in a lot of ways that's an incredibly clear kind of recommendation so thank you for that um coming especially from looking at the diversity of the efforts you examined that's really interesting and i'm sure uh, not just for me but for the listeners too so thank you um And to close out the interview, what is often kind of a mean question, uh, you wrote this book. It came out last year. It has since um, become a Pulitzer Prize finalist, which is amazing. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. But presumably you are working on something new now?
1: I am, yeah. I'm thank you for asking. It's always much more fun to like to be like, oh, okay, all right, it's not all over. Um, yeah, I'm working on um a biography of um the radical, and I do do mean that, uh, radical uh Islamic feminist theologian, Amina Wadud, who has transformed how people read for gender in the Quran. Um, And she's an extraordinary woman. She was uh, born to she was a preacher's kid from um, rural Maryland and who grew up and converted and um, in many ways changed how people read um, the Quran in terms of justice and equality for everyone. So um, so it's a real pleasure and an honor to be working on that.
0: That's amazing. That sounds really interesting. Um, hopefully, yeah. that'll be another book, and then we can all read that, and you can come back Absolutely. and tell us about it. <laughs> great. I'd love to. That I'd would be great. To, yeah. um, <laughs> okay. cool. Well, while you are off working on that, uh, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing on this episode, which, as a reminder, is titled Homeland Security de and the journey back from extremism published by one world in 2021 thank you so much for joining us on the podcast carla power
1: thank you for having me it was a real real pleasure i, I hope you will have me back okay. <laughs>